This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Sig Sauer. So my guest today is a dear friend, Fred Burton. Fred Burton was with the Diplomatic Security Service of the State Department, specializing in counterterrorism for a career that spanned uh, from the mid-80s up until really 2000. And one. He's the author of a book I go back to time and time again as I'm researching characters for my novels, trying to get inside the head of terrorists, uh, particularly during this time frame in the mid-80s with Hezbollah. But Beirut Rules, uh, Ghost is another uh, book of his that goes through his time in the diplomatic security service, uh, Chasing Shadows and Under Fire about Benghazi. So can't recommend these books enough. Had a great time talking to Fred and... Uh, Without further ado, Fred Burton. Fred Burton is my guest today. Um, I knew about Fred well before we were friends, and uh, I go to his books often for for research. Even if I lived through an event, uh, uh, remember it, have researched it in the past, I always come back to these books um, because they're well, they're so well written. First off. Uh, and you had a hand in so many of these different events that were very impactful to me during a very uh, important time in my life. Um, but let, how did it all, how did this all start for you? So your official title uh, was a State Department uh, Diplomatic Security Services Counterterrorism Chief, eventually, or a agent, or how does that what what is the what was the official title? Sure, I'll I'll give you the. Um... Uh, the the thumbnail sketch of my career, yes. Jack. Uh, when I uh, when I graduated from basic agent training, I was assigned to what at that time was called the counterterrorism branch. And I looked around the the room. You know how it is when you're graduating from these classes, and there was another another agent uh, that was also assigned there. And I kind of eyeballed him, and he eyeballed me, and we're kind of looking at each other, and we had no idea what it was. And uh, we show up and. Uh, lo and behold, there's three of us, literally for the world, uh, within the State Department's uh, newly formed Diplomatic Security Service. So, and what year is know, this? There's a, this is 1985. 1985. Yeah, and you know, there's a long history, Jack, that uh, a lot of folks don't know that I try to come back to in my stories. Meaning, if you look at the State Department's history of security and intelligence. It actually goes back to 1916 when it was formed as the first Bureau of Secret Intelligence. And there's really like a cool badge that uh, that exists to that. So, uh, and uh, after the U.S. Embassy bombings uh, in Beirut in 83 and 84, and also the U.S. Embassy bombing in Kuwait, there was a big study put together by uh, Admiral Bobby Ray Inman, uh, who's just a, a hero, uh, you know, legendary figure with uh, uh, the U.S. Navy. He was at the CIA and he was at NSA. And he studies the vulnerabilities to all of these State Department disasters that have occurred uh, from the 60s to the 70s to the 80s. And he puts together this commission that says, we really need to hire a bunch of State Department agents. So I was one of those first agents that were hired, and we were called Inman Hires. And Admiral Inman remains a, a mentor of mine. 
and was kind enough to write a couple of book jacket testimonials for me on, on my books. And, and he teaches uh, here at the University of Texas in Austin, uh, where I'm based at. So as a result of Admiral Inman's work, the State Department beefs up all of its security around the globe. And I was one of those first agents assigned to the counterterrorism branch. Well, but your story goes back a little little farther than that. Um, and I highly recommend people pick up the, the Chasing Shadows right here. But you're, uh, well, in all these books, we'll talk, we'll talk about them all. We might have to do a different podcast for each one of these books. And then about your future one that, that I hope you're, you're working on now. Um, but when you were a, a kid and it, you were 16, 15, uh, 16. a neighbor of yours was murdered. Um, right in your in your neighborhood, and who who was he? And did that did that start you down that path, or were you already uh, on on a path to some sort of service or some sort of government service? Uh, were you already on that path, and this just solidified it, or was this a very a seminal event in your uh, childhood? Well, Jack, uh, much like you and I have chatted in the past, uh, you know, I don't know how much was fate or destiny, but. You know, here as a as a young kid growing up in uh, the outskirts of Washington D.C. in uh, Bethesda, Chevy Chase, Maryland, uh, we had a, a killing uh, in our neighborhood, uh, and you know these things just didn't happen. Now this is before the internet, and you know of course this is covered on the local radio, and you have, you know, at that time you had the Washington Post that was delivered in the morning, and we actually had an evening newspaper called the Washington Star. And and so we have this murder in the neighborhood of what turned out to be an Israeli diplomat. And he actually was the military attache. He was a, a hero of the state of Israel. He was one of the original founders of the Israeli Air Force in 1948. His name was Joe Alon. And uh, he was murdered. And he pulled in late at night uh, from an embassy party, uh, stepped out of his car. Uh, a gunman stepped out of the bushes and fired several rounds into him and hit the car. Uh, his wife had actually gone inside. And so uh, that was something that always stuck with me. So, you know, as, as soon as I turned um, 17, Jack, I, I started volunteering at uh, the Bethesda Chevy Chase Rescue Squad, which I talk about in my first book, Ghost. The rescue squad actually came and picked up Colonel Alon that night. And so um, I really got the bug of public safety through volunteering at the rescue squad. And then I became a local police officer with Montgomery County, Maryland, where the murder actually occurred uh, before I became a special agent with the State Department. So, uh, you know, my life kind of evolved around this murder that happened in the, in the neighborhood. And so uh, after I did my first book, Ghost, uh, I went back to this story because I always thought it was a story that needed to be told. Yeah. And you and did you go to college in there at some point or you went right into yeah, after high went, school? When uh, you... No, no, I went, uh, you know, to the University of Maryland. Uh, and graduated with a degree in uh, criminal justice and psychology. Uh, and so that was my path to kind of, you know, get me in started. But, you know, um, for me, Jack, the um, the rescue squad kind of lit the fuse in my eyes uh, to do something in public service. And, you know, I remain a life member there and I go back for talks and book signings whenever I can. 
but uh, so there was a whole group of us at that time that went into public safety. Uh, many of us either went to fire and rescue, uh, and a good number of us went to uh, either local, state, or federal police, and we kind of went from there. Got we had it. a lot of uh, U.S. Park Police officers that came out of the rescue squad that flew uh, Eagle One, uh, their, their helicopter uh, that is uh, very famous around the D.C. area for a for river rescues, and it's also used for presidential escorts and so forth. That's amazing. How many years did you do on that police force there? I did three. Okay. And I had a I had a wise old sergeant, Jack, that uh, uh, was a great guy. He had been a SWAT team commander, and he said, Fred, you know, do you really want to be doing this when you're 50? And I can't look farther than, you know, next week at oh, that age. <laughs> and And he said, you know, you really need to think about looking at federal law enforcement. And the backstory there is, you know, as, as a young cop, I certainly couldn't afford much. And I had a, uh, I had an apartment that I think I got a discount for, for parking my cruiser in the parking lot, you know, back in those days. And what year is this? And, is it early eighties uh, right here? Early eighties. And so, uh, I used to drive by, uh, this location well, I used to drive by where Colonel Alon was murdered pretty much uh, every night after getting off of my evening shift or midnight shift and just think about, you know, how did the bad guys get away from killing this guy? I must have driven down that street, Jack, um, I don't know, 500 times and just think about the case. And did as did a, you go you know, into those files? A, was there a, were there files at that at, at police department that you read or an investigation? Not really. You know, those days, you know, this is pre-incident, pre-internet days, you know, the... The file would have been in, uh, you know, the homicide division uh, or in the cold case squad. And I was so far down the rungs as just a beat cop that, you know, I would never have been able to get access to them anyways. Uh, and probably some crusty old detective would have booted me out of the room if I had asked. But um, so uh, that really kind of stuck with me forever. And so when I was fortunate enough to land in the counterterrorism division with the State Department, one of the first things I did was pulled that case file to see what we had on it at the time. And this would have been 1986. And in those days, we kept our case files, uh, you know, it was a hodgepodge of open source newspaper clippings, uh, a police report. Uh, there might have been an FBI report in there. I don't remember anything from the CIA being stuck in the file. There might have been a picture of Colonel Alon. And, you know, I would just kind of study it. And I said, you know, this case has never been solved. We really need to, to reopen it. And um, I had a uh, crusty old boss at the time who turned out to be a wonderful mentor of mine. Uh, and, you know, he kind of looked at me and said, well, if you want to look at it, you can do it on your own time or as time permits because... You know, Jack, we had hijackings and kidnappings and terrorist attacks all around the globe. So there wasn't a lot of time, even though this was 1986, to look at a case that happened in, in the 70s. So that was just the nature of the business during those days. So you had to wait till you got a little more seniority where you could uh, then go and open that file and not have somebody tell you to do it on your own time. Uh, but you, you waited a few years, right, until you really dove back into it. Is that right? I did. It, it was always on my desk. 
you know, on my desk was an old wooden desk. Uh, and I had a thumbtack picture of Carlos the Jackal to my left that was just like always there staring at me. Uh, and then on my desk, I had the Beirut embassy bombings. Uh, I had the kidnappings of all the American hostages in Lebanon, uh, specifically William Buckley, the CIA station chief. Uh, and then I had the Colonel Alon file on my desk as well. And I would dabble with it from time to time. I remember once um, sending a cable off. In those days, you had to type them on a uh, IBM Selectric. And, <laughs> and wow. you had to use uh, an OCR font. I remember that. And, you know, I'm there typing like this, fingers, you know, like, and typing up a cable and sending it to the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv to our regional security officer at the time saying, you know, hey, I've reopened this case. I'd love to know what you might have in your files. Is there any way you can visit with the Israeli Shen Bet, their domestic security service, and ask him what they might have on this? And I remember I got nowhere. You know, it was just one of these cases that had just slipped through the cracks. Interesting. So I'm going to take it back a tiny bit here. Um, so you apply for specifically uh, the DSS portion of yes. State Department. And, and let me mention something. I, I left out a key part there, Jack, that I'm glad you did that. You're a good interrogator. Uh, <laughs> I've been on the receiving end of a couple. <laughs> the Secretary of State at the time was George Schultz, and he lived in Bethesda, Maryland. So on my way home, I knew that there were these agents that protected the Secretary of the State, yeah. but they weren't Secret Service. So who the hell were they? So uh, I was able, I wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. But I was able to piece together that these were actually State Department special agents. And so I said, man, that sounds like a very cool job. wonder what these guys and gals usually do. So that kind of led me on my hunt to try to apply for the State Department. And I think, like anything else, Jack, you know, timing in this world is everything. And I applied at a time when the organization was just expanding. I think when I first joined we might have had 250 agents for the entire world. Wow. And then uh, we greatly increased that first couple of years after the Inman Commission study. That's, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Um, so you apply. And back then, you couldn't just go to your computer and you know, Google it and find out. You had, you, had to act, you had to take initiative. You had to figure this out. So where did you go? Did you go walk down to the, the State Department and ask them, hey, who are these guys? How do you apply? Like, how would you find out? Uh, back in those days, like mid 80s, how to apply for a federal, you call, you find a number and you call the you state. You find department. a number and you call and you say, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'd like to know how about, how do I go about applying for a job with the State Department? In those days, you had personnel that would help you and mail you like a vacancy announcement. And I remember, you know, filling out all the forms and, and listing all my, you know, my references, like we all do, we list our buddies that we know are not going to come in and say, Hey, you know, yeah. uh, yeah. you know, Fred's a good guy. <laughs> uh, you want to make sure you've got that, that box check. So I listed all my friends from the rescue squad and the police department. And, and then I remember it, it was kind of a funny story, Jack. I, um, in those days, you really didn't know much about the state department, you know, now since, um, Benghazi and, and, and other disasters, a lot more people know about these jobs. So um, I remember getting a notice to report for a oral interview. And 
it really didn't tell you where to, you know, what to expect. And I went down to a office on um, Wisconsin Avenue in Georgetown. For those of you that will be watching this or listening to this in the DC area, it was in some obscure office in, in DC down near Georgetown. And I remember walking in and I had a, the best suit I had at the time as a, as a cop, as you know, um, I think I might have, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I might've had to gone out and buy one, uh, to make sure that I look presentable. And I walked in and, and there were three, uh, people that would interview you. And I subsequently found out that, uh, two of the three were agents, uh, and maybe one was an active duty and maybe one had been retired. I'm, I'm not really sure now. And the other was a foreign service officer. And I remember them asking me just very unusual questions that I didn't expect, such as, uh, you know, Fred, uh, what's the last book that you read? Now, fortunately, that was one thing that I did do a lot of. <laughs> and um, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, is this kind of a trick question? Do I have to have like James Bond or what do right. I need to mention here? And I, the first thing that came to mind was uh, Chesapeake by James Michener. Hmm. Uh, and Michener had always been a, a, a writer that I'd always read. And I remember saying that. And then I remember the agents kind of looking at me and then the foreign service officer said, well, tell me a little bit about that book nice. just to try to make yeah, sure yeah. that I actually had read it. Right. Oh, and fantastic. so, which I always thought was a good question. Um, yeah, no, that's a great question. I love that one because I, I can talk yeah. about books all day long. So I like getting that one. And then did you go yeah. through a process before you went to training? Like, was there a, a poly involved back then or anything? No, like that? there was no polygraph uh, in those days whatsoever. So they asked me a series of questions. And I remember, you know, one of the questions was a, a deadly force scenario. Okay, Fred, I know you don't know how to do protection. But let's say you're on a protection detail and you're protecting a British royal that comes to the United States. And all of a sudden, a man with a gun starts charging you. What would you do? And, you know, of course, you're trying to, to dissect that in your mind saying, OK, I'm a cop now. What would I do? Um, well, you want to cover and evacuate the protectee. And then you're going to try to neutralize the threat and they're going and then at that point they're asking you questions well like how would you go about neutralizing the threat and and the whole thing is they're trying to stair step you through would you be willing to use deadly force hmm. if need be to protect life uh, in that kind of scenario yeah. and so that's what they're trying to get to uh, as a course of that and then um Jack, uh, for, for some strange reason, I must have passed all the questions. <laughs> and uh, they, you know, they, they started running the background investigation. I remember there was, uh, I'm sure he's uh, deceased by now, but there was an old-time FBI agent, retired FBI agent that actually did my background investigation. And um, because of my, all my friends would say, hey, Fred, there was this guy coming around asking questions about you. And I said, well, what'd you say? You didn't say anything bad, did you? <laughs> yeah. And they said, oh, no, of course not. We took care of you. Of course, you never really know, right? Right, you never know. And uh, <laughs> then um, I remember getting the letter of being hired. And it was like, wow. And I, I, I seem to recall my starting pay might have been like $21,000 or 
Big time. It was something along those, that line. I, it wasn't a lot of money yeah, in that I mean, time period, but it's not hell, why you do it. Yeah. Gonna, <laughs> I was going to be a federal agent. You know, That's I didn't amazing. care what they were going to pay me. Right. Right. And did you go right? So, did you guys go to the, uh, uh, federal law enforcement training facility in, uh, in Georgia? Was that around back then? Yes. Yes. Uh, we're not that, I'm not that old, Jack. <laughs> I don't was, know when it, it started. Built. I don't know that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it was built then, but <laughs> it, you started off in Washington, DC at the state department. And I remember, I remember walking in, we had a class of 48 agents Okay. and, uh, that was a large group of agents and everybody goes around and introduces them, themselves. And I remember standing up and saying, you know, hi, I'm Fred Burton. I was a police officer with Montgomery County, Maryland, you know, before I was fortunate enough to get this job. And then going around the room, just listening and being, oh my gosh, just, there was agents from DEA that were transferring over. Uh, there were uh, cops from all around the country that were coming in. Uh, there, there were only two agents in my class that actually were hired right out of college with practically no like law enforcement experience. Uh, there was a lot of former military, um, Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, all, all the branches of service, uh, or they had served. Uh, and then um, our first training location was... Uh, at uh, Summit Point, West Virginia, at uh, the Bill Scott Raceway. That's what I was going to say. I, I know that. I, I've been there. I was like, I, I'm I know sure that you town. Have. It's, been, it's been a long time. I think I went there in 99 um, and did the uh, did the driving training out there. Yeah. BSR. That, that, it was, well, first off, this was, uh, it was cold. Okay. And I mean, it is cold in West Virginia at in, in the wintertime when we went through basic, basic agent training. And and we did all the crash and bang driving courses there, which were a lot of fun, which I'm sure you've been so through. <laughs> and then we had in those days, we, uh, I know you're a gun guy. Uh, so we had uh, three primary weapons. We had uh, the Smith and Wesson 357 model 19. Okay. Which is still Classic. one of my favorite guns yeah. of all time. Oh yeah. And then we had the Uzi. Nice. And then we had the shorty shotguns, okay, which were the Remington 870s yep. that had been like cut down. Mm -hmm. So when you were in a follow car, you could just pull them up, you know. Okay. And we were at the uh, outdoor. Of course, there's no indoor range in that time period. I don't know when you went through if they had one, but not there at that, at that time. Yeah, we were shooting in the outdoor ranges in the winter time, standing in snow just freezing our rear ends off uh, with a unbelievable firearms instructor, Jack, who had been um, a legend in our service. Uh, he was a retired Marine sniper. And uh, he had trained all the agents, you know, from the late 60s on up into the 70s and to the 80s. And he was, as you know, in this business, one of these no BS guys. Oh yeah, especially you that, know? especially that generation, guys coming out of Vietnam, probably. And oh yeah, uh, yeah, especially as a Marine sniper, like that's no joke. Yeah, and uh, real legend in our business. He was one of actually one of the uh, agents that um, went out on all of our hotspots around the globe. I subsequently found out that he was actually involved in 
the first and second U.S. embassy bombing investigations in Beirut uh, just because of, you know, he was uh, a gunslinger, you yeah. know, and in, the, in those days, we, we, uh, we had that generation of agent, Jack, that had come out of Vietnam. And, you know, most, most had served in, in the military. Uh, in fact, uh, several had, you know, been at the U.S. Embassy in Saigon when it had been overran wow. in 68. And, um, and some had served in, in Islamabad in 79 when we had the embassy facility seizure there and the embassy set on fire, you know, but Benghazi style. And then of course, um, uh, one of our agents uh, had actually been a hostage in Tehran uh, during that embassy facility seizure for 444 days. No kidding. And he was an instructor at that point? No, no. um, He was an agent. When I met him, um, he he might have been responsible for the oversight of the anti-terrorism assistance program at the time, which also came out of that 1986 uh, time frame. Okay, uh, the global uh, assistance program, and um, uh, in fact, uh, he he was very helpful uh, to uh, Sam and I put together a Benghazi story, yeah. and his picture is in our Benghazi book, uh, and uh, you know just just talking us through that time period. Yeah. Uh, there was just so much disaster with the State Department in the 60s and the 70s, and predominantly in the 70s was was very bad decade for the State Department. Yeah, well, we're l- learning, always learning. Um, so then you go, you hit, go finish BSR, and then you go down to to uh, Georgia and go through that program, yes. which is a few months long. Uh, we went from uh, Bill Scott Raceway in West Virginia to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, Fletsy, okay. for uh, the Criminal Investigator Training Program, the 1811 Series Training Program, okay. which was a good course. Uh, you know, I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, then after, it was eight weeks, and then we come back to Washington where we did all the specialized training such as uh, the mock motorcades, the dummy uh, protective details, okay. the exercises through the streets of Washington, where we would uh, move protectees and and learn how to put together a motorcade, um, and then we also had, you know, specialized briefings like foreign counterintelligence, um, w- you know, which obviously the Cold War is you know roaring in those days. Um, then we had uh, U.S. passport and visa fraud special investigations. How do you conduct those? Um, and then there was really no training to do what I had done. So when I was assigned to my unit, then I started looking around to see where else I could go to learn how to investigate, for example, bombings. So um, once I got to our group, I went uh, at that point, to uh, the FBI bombing crime scene school uh, down at Quantico, which was a very cool school. Uh, I would highly recommend it. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have been there. It's a great school. Uh, you know, the practical exercise at the time was uh, a car bomb, and then you investigate how the bomb occurred. Wow. And then I went to a DOD bombing school at uh, Indian Head, Maryland. Okay. I remember going through that one, yeah, which was uh, kind of cool because we actually made IEDs, yep, 
Uh, yeah. Um, which was kind of nerve wracking. <laughs> That's fantastic. When you got to this unit, did you expect to be doing investigations or did you expect to be walking on a detail for uh, foreign heads of state or that sort of thing? What did you, what did you think you were stepping into? I had no idea. And I, I literally had no idea what I was stepping into. Uh, I said, wow, counterterrorism branch, man, this must be like the cutting edge. And I get there to see like, I'm one of three. Wow. And our job, uh, we were really kind of making it up at the mm -hmm. time. So uh, my boss at the time, Steve Gleason, who's a wonderful mentor, I'm still in touch with Steve today. Um, he had investigated uh, the first embassy bombings and had investigated the first hostage taking. So he kind of looked at me and said, hey, you're the, young, you're the young guy in here now. I want you to handle uh, the sandbox, which was the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And he said, you've got all the hostages and you've got all the terrorist attacks that take place there. And, you know, I, I didn't want to look at him and say, Steve, I really don't know what the hell I'm doing. But I didn't really know what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so uh, he kind of held my hand and, um, you know, went out with me on the first hostage debriefing uh, that we had. And then the second one, he said, you know, you've learned now. I want you to handle this. I'll be there just watching. No kidding. And which is kind of nervous. What was that first you know, uh, right? debriefing? Is that one when, when a hostage is released and now you're going Correct. to get, when a, get when into a hostage, how to debrief them? Right. When a hostage was debriefed. And so what I did to study up on that, Jack, is I went back. You know, the whole history of hostage debriefing really originated out of uh, the POWs at the Hanoi Hilton in Vietnam. And we had uh, case files in our office there surrounding those debriefings that were a hodgepodge of, of State Department, DOD, CIA kind of people that did debriefings. And then we had the U.S. Embassy Tehran hostage debriefing files in our office. And I went through them with a fine tooth comb to kind of look at the kind of line of questioning that went on during that time period. And then um, what we would do as we went to debrief the hostage would, would, would kind of feed off each other and ask a series of questions surrounding you know, help walk me through what happened that first day. You know, what do you remember about your initial abduction? Do you remember being under surveillance before? If so, how? And then we would get very tactical in the course of these debriefings at times, depending upon the health and mental capacity of the hostage that we were debriefing. Now, of course, uh, from a special ops perspective, we would ask those kinds of requirements too, such as, do you remember your holding cell? What did it look like? You know, which ways did the doors swing open? How were the windows configured? You know, what kind of weapons did the guards have that were guarding you? And how did they secure you? And so we went through a very detailed kind of list of requirements that we would solicit from the intelligence community before we went out to debrief the actual hostage. Right. And so at this point, you are seven, eight years past the Iranian revolution and the Iranian hostage crisis. You're three, four, five, getting to five years past the uh, Marine barracks 
bombing in Beirut, uh, past the uh, embassy annex bombing there. Um, and then do you remember the first, um, what was the first terrorist incident that you investigated or were involved with um, that, uh, that happened while you were in that seat during that, that first year or two on the job? Yeah. Yeah, it's a very good question. And I know I, I reconstructed them for my first book, Ghost. Um, a couple of things you know, leaped to mind, Jack, was uh, in, in 1987, uh, we had an individual that, um, this was a domestic threat investigation. We had, uh, well, uh, let, me, let me back up. 1986, the two, two cases that I vividly recall working on uh, one involved uh, the shooting of a uh, State Department officer in Sana'a, Yemen. Uh, and uh, then in 86, we had the shooting of a, another State Department officer in Khartoum, Sudan. Uh, both were carried out by uh, Libyan hit teams. Uh, those were two of my first cases. Um, and I remember the old identikit, uh, which was kind of like an etch-a-sketch that you would piece together uh, was suspect identification. Both of the victims lived uh, and were able to help with identification of suspects. And we put together some drawings and we were able to cobble together that, you know, the Libyans were involved in both. And this would have been in the time frame of the LaBelle La disco bombing as well, mm -hmm. which was Libyan backed. You know, Libya was very active in the, in the mid to late eighties with uh, terrorist attacks. So Khartoum and Sana'a, uh, LaBelle disco bombing. Um, and then in 87, we had a very serious um, threat against the Secretary of State and uh, the president with an individual that uh, drove to Washington, D.C. with a carload of firearms uh, for the purposes of carrying out an attack. And fortunately, we were able to work that case. DC, a very, very observant D.C. cop found found the shooter at this flea bag motel in Anacostia. And uh, the DC SWAT team arrested him that morning. And we, we started interviewing him about, you know, how he put that plot together and how he had surveilled us. And that really kind of opened my eyes to this world of how bad guys conduct surveillance because he had kind of stalked us, Jack, mm -hmm. uh, for a long period of time and we never saw him. Yeah, And so uh, that really made me start thinking about the attack cycle and how can we get in front of these kinds of threats and, and what are we missing because we're just racing around the world on different bombings and attacks. And, and so, you know, co-mingled in here, we had hijackings, we had um, uh, ongoing hostage takings in Beirut, Lebanon. Um, if memory serves me right, the first hostage I, de I debriefed was uh, Father Martin Jinko, a Catholic priest that that had a wonderful man, uh, had been, you know, kid, kidnapped by Hezbollah. Uh, we did, of course, we did not know it was Hezbollah at the time. We we suspected it was. Mm. Uh, then we had the hospital administrator at the American University of Beirut kidnapped David Jacobson, and he was released. Uh, my old friend Charlie Glass uh, was uh, an ABC News correspondent. Uh, he was kidnapped, but he was able to escape, and he was a wonderful witness on um, helping us piece together how the, how the tactics deployed. And then, of course, our ultimate goal, Jack, was to find Bill Buckley. Yeah. When did he come uh, on your, your radar? When did you first? He was, his case name? file was handed to me when I first got into the group, 
um, my boss handed me the Beirut embassy files and uh, Bill Buckley's files and said, um, you know, he's the reason we're looking for all the hostages in Lebanon. Study up on this. We're trying to find him. Uh, you're going to be a part of what was called at the time the Hostage Location Task Force, mm. the H HLTF. And we were actually housed at the CIA uh, inside uh, the Counterterrorism Center. Mm -hmm. So um, it was a small group of interagency participants, uh, namely me, uh, an, an FBI agent, uh, and an agency officer. Uh, and then we would have um, DOD support from time to time, you know, depending upon the hostage and the situation and the requirements needed and so forth. So uh, Bill Buckley's file was with me from the from day one on the job. No kidding. Wow. And so right before that, we had TWA847. We have Achille Laurel. Um, later, a couple of years into it, we have Pan Am 103. Um, and you were involved with that as well, correct? Correct. Uh, we had, um, well, we had the hijacking of Kuwaiti Air 422. We had the hijacking of Pan Am 73. Uh, and then we, you know, the horrific uh, bombing of uh, Pan Am 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, where we lost uh, our agents that were on the flight. December 21st, 1988. I'll never forget that day, uh, which was horrible. Um, one of the other things my office did at the time, Jack, was we ran the Rewards for Justice program, which at the time was only $2 million. You know, it subsequently ramped up to $20 million for bin Laden, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, at the time, we had uh, a $2 million bounty for um, the successful resolution, the favorable resolution of, of uh, the identification of threat actors, uh, or trying to stop threats uh, that were unfolding. Uh, I remember, uh, for example, um, what we wanted to do with Pan Am 103 is we wanted to use the $2 million bounty to lead us to the capture of those individuals that were responsible for that bombing, which at the time, forensically, we had tied to the Libyans. Um, but we never were successful in, in getting our hands on anybody. Uh, the largest reward we paid under my watch, Jack, was um, to the informant uh, that set up uh, Ramsey Yosef, uh, you know, the mastermind of the first World Trade Center bombing. Yeah. So uh, we paid that guy uh, $1.2 million uh, and... Um, put him inside of the uh, witness security program. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so our office. That's amazing. So was, how did you get involved with that one? Because that one is so uh, bombing World Trade Center. Uh, he escapes um, and is in the Philippines uh, hatching another another plot to bomb multiple airliners uh, in the Pacific region um, on or around January, February timeframe of 95, I want to say. So uh, right. 94, he's in the Philippines, uh, testing out, tests a bomb, a successful bomb, didn't bring the aircraft down, but uh, um, killed, I think, one person. Uh, and then uh, used that as a test run for um, uh, Operation Bojinka, I think they, they called it. Um, and, and there's a fire in the apartment, one of those 
whether right. it was random or somebody they're doing something who knows but uh, uh suspicious fire de- department shows up in manila and i think it was manila and uh it and, was and uh and find, hey there's some suspicious suspicious here some guy runs off uh and then that really led to the unraveling of that plot but he still made it from there uh to pakistan he did and that's he where did. he tracked they- him down Right. Um, you know, the backstory was, you know, when the World Trade Center was bombed the first time in 93, uh, we obviously utilized the Rewards for Justice program to try to apprehend those who were responsible for that. Uh, and my office actually deployed agents uh, to the bombing scene. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Scotty Stewart, went up with uh, our portable Aegis uh, explosive detector device um, and, and drove that up to New York. Uh, to to work the crime scene. Our New York field office was involved. You know, obviously the FBI was responsible for the overall crime scene investigation, but it was a multi-agency effort with ATF, FBI, NYPD. Uh, Our office was engaged. Our New York field office was heavily involved. Uh, And and so uh, when the fire happened in Manila, uh, the U.S. Embassy uh, regional security officer at the time which is, you know, overseas in the State Department, special agents are the regional security officers or an assistant regional security officer. Uh, and uh, he cabled in what had happened. And of course, we offered our help to the uh, Philippine National Police. And if memory serves me right, they did take advantage of that. Uh, we offered our forensic and investigative assistance, and we eventually got our hands on um uh, you know, some of the laptops and some of the, the data at the time. And, uh, you know, that fire was set. Uh, I believe that he, he was cooking explosives and set, set the apartment on fire. Uh, if memory serves me right, it's been a while now. And then he fled from there and he went um, around and then ultimately wound up in Pakistan. So uh, during this time period, we were getting sightings of Yosef all over the world. And I had by, I don't know, sheer uh, last man standing, I had somehow managed to become the deputy chief of our unit. And uh, it, it certainly uh, was no great feat on my part. I just think <laughs> I had been there longer than anybody else and, and nobody else wanted the damn job, right? It's possible, no. Yeah, nobody else wanted the job and nobody else wanted to write employee performance uh, reviews. <laughs> so uh, I was pretty good at that. Uh, so, uh, anyway, so Yosef, we have him all over the place and we had all kinds of fraud, you know, um, just information peddlers, everybody's trying to get their hands on the reward monies for Yosef. And, um, I got a call on, um, the secure voice phone one day when I'm in the office and we called it the bat phone, right? Nice. And. I pick it up and it was the regional security officer in Islamabad. And he was a great guy I'd known. I had worked a previous case with him. And so I knew he was a, a, a damn good investigator. And he goes, you know, Fred, we've had a uh, walk-in here. And he's not really a walk-in, but I don't want to get into details right now. But I think this informant is good. And so I kind of Lean back, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, you're about the 20th person to call me this week with a good informant. And he goes, he goes, no, no, you know, no BS. I think this guy's pretty good. And I said, okay, I, I believe you. And um, literally, to, to make a long story short, um, 
you know, I cover this in, in Ghost. Um, the informant uh, had befriended Yosef and got nervous, Jack, because he was being used as a courier run, as a dummy run, to carry these little baby dolls onto planes. Uh-huh. And Yosef's intentions, back to the Bojinka plot, was to take these baby doll bombs and fan them out on different flights and blow up several different airliners. And so our informant had carried one of these devices and on his last trial run, the light bulb went off in his head saying, you know, I may not come off on the next plane that I'm on. Right. Here, here's so, another trial run for you. And the, yeah, yeah, it's not the trial run. Yeah, exactly. It, it's kind of like I'm sure with, you know, the teams for you guys, you know, who wants to volunteer? <laughs> Voluntold you know, like, uh, is more like how it, how it works there. Yeah, exactly. So he... Uh, Did they ever make it through with those with uh, actual explosives in there? Or was it just the the shell, like making it making it Just through? the shell, Jack. Yeah. Provided the guy was telling us the truth, right. uh, which I believe him. He, he, he turned out to be a solid informant that, yeah. that that gave us Yosef. And he said, he had said uh, to our agents that initially debriefed him that uh, he had seen a Rewards for Justice poster. And he said, I know this. I, I know this guy. I He's going to contact me. And that led to kind of the unraveling. And wow. so when our agents called me, I said, well, okay, you know, Tell him to call us when Yosef shows back up. And lo and behold, Yosef showed back up. I think it was in within a 36-hour window. And, uh, you know, the rest is kind of history. Um, you know, when that happened, was I, was in, a, uh, I was traveling in Australia, New Zealand in that December, January time frame. And I remember going, I think it was flying out of New Zealand. Went to Australia, but flying out of New Zealand. But um, regardless, I'd never had security, seen security switch like that like as i'm there i see everything start to change and i see lines not just forming through the regular security but once you got to the gate all your bags checked your shoes off everything everyone individually checked before they went and got on the plane and the whole atmosphere had changed in that airport while i was waiting there i think it was early january of 95 i think um but you could see it because it was one of those routes that may have been uh targeted so heading home from australia from new zealand during that uh during that time frame but it was interesting to see security change. I'd never seen that before. Uh, and then year later I find out, you know, what it was, what, why they were doing that. Um, yeah, crazy. But you're involved in all these things. And now, uh, Ramzi Ahmed Yusuf is, uh, serving a lot of time at the Supermax prison in Colorado. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jack, I, I've gotten way, way too much credit for that. I, my role was, you know, um, I did what any of us would have done during that time frame to uh, capture this guy. One of the one of the things that still drives me crazy, Jack, um, is I know he was in Islamabad to carry out some sort of attack, and for the life of me, we never could figure out what he was up to. Uh, and so, you know, my gut told me at the time that uh, I mean, you have to step back and look at this time period. I mean, he had already blown up the World Trade Center mm-hmm. the first time. Uh, he had planned to kill the Pope in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had planted bombs on airplanes coming out of the South Pacific. Yeah. And now he's in Islamabad and he was walking around uh, the diplomatic enclave with our informant, you know, looking for homes, uh, 
And I think he was very much trying to plan an attack to go after a Western diplomat of some kind, uh, probably with some sort of bomb, but I don't know. Uh, and that was one of those kinds of things that there's so many of these cases, Jack, that just haunt me because, you know, you know the target that was hit, but you don't really know all the other targets that were looked at to get to that point. Right. Right. He certainly and, wasn't there on vacation or just to, to retire. I mean, he was right. a very active person. Right. And, uh, you know, during that time period, the geopolitics of Pakistan were such that, you know, we... We were dealing with, uh, you know, in many ways, the ISI, which was a hostile intelligence agency, uh, you know, where their loyalties lied at any given time, you know, was almost trying to like work with the KGB right. uh, when you started to, you know, get down to it. And um, so it, it was just, yeah, there, there was really no rules with uh, these folks. Wow. That's amazing. And how did, where, where did Carlos the Jackal fit into to all this? He's on your, well, Carlos, he's on your, de your desk from day one. Yeah, that's a, a fascinating story, Jack, because, you know, in my generation, when I started, he was the poster child of terror. Right. And I have a book over I there called The New Jackals uh, from back in the mid-90s, maybe late 90s. I forget, but I have a whole section here of books that I've collected over time. Some of these older books on terrorism from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, but yeah, The New Jackals is in there and has that, that title for a reason. Yeah, he was... Um, literally the poster child. And I remember as a cop reading about Carlos the Jackal. He was this guy that was all around the world carrying out these terrorist attacks. He had done the OPEC summit. Uh, he had assassinated a, um, a Jewish businessman in London. You know, he was a paid hitman, And, you know, he was working uh, for Gaddafi. Uh, he was swimming in all these leftist radical circles with, you know, the old Italian red Italian Red Brigades, the Red Army Faction, the Japanese Red Army, uh, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, General Command. And he was living and moving with all these circles. So he was kind of like the poster child for somebody that you could never catch. Right. And I would sit there in my office and think, my goodness, we have Interpol, we have the CIA, we have U.S. Special Forces, we have MI6, we have everybody looking for this guy. Why can't we find him? And he was, you know, being utilized as a nation state gun for hire. So he was traveling under pseudonyms and aliases on diplomatic passports. And so it's kind of an interesting kind of book in to your question, because if you fast forward uh, uh, many, many years later, to after Chasing Shadows came out, uh, I get a call in my office one day, many years after I've left the government, from the uh, FBI in Paris. And they said, hey, we saw your book and we want to reopen this case. And they said, well, who would you interview if you were us? And I said, you know, I would try to get to Carlos the Jackal because I could never get to him to talk to him directly. As a sidebar, Jack, I had been corresponding with his uh, first wife, uh, Magdalena Kopp, who had been a terrorist herself, and she was very helpful. It was amazing to me, and still is, you know, the people that will answer my emails. But, <laughs> That's um, incredible. 
she had been corresponding with me and talking to me about Carlos, and I was asking her questions about the Elan murder, you know, back in the 70s. And she said, well, if anybody would know, Carlos would know. So uh, I pointed the FBI in that direction, and they did uh, some follow-up interviews with Carlos, and I signed a bunch of book books for them, and I actually shipped them off to uh, the FBI, and uh, they they gave one to Carlos. No way. That's incredible. Yeah, I, I, I don't think he liked it, <laughs> but... Uh, that is too know, cool. That's, oh, that's my... my Carlos story. Oh my, and where is he locked up right now? He's in a French prison for life for um, uh, killing uh, French police officers. Jeez, that's incredible. What, and then when did you, um, what was your last case or what did you, uh, uh, when did you leave uh, the diplomatic security service? Well, um, my last case, the last big case I, I remember, I was in Atlanta. I was running uh, protective intelligence operations for uh, the State Department for the protection of all the Olympic athletes in Atlanta at the Olympics. And I think that was in 96, so, right? Yep. Uh, and uh, everything was fine until we had the bombing at Centennial Park. So one of the things that my office did, we, we were doing the Rewards for Justice program. That was a separate unit now reporting to me. Uh, we were doing counterterrorism investigations, another separate unit. And we were doing protective intelligence, uh, running intel for high threat protective details or large special events. So whenever we would have Yasser Arafat visit uh, or Princess Diana or uh, the British Royals or uh, any high threat protective operation or a Middle East peace conference or uh, in this case, the Olympics in Atlanta, uh, I was down there for three months for that. And um, so, of course, we had agents assigned to the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force at the time. And, you know, the bomb went off that night and we had no idea, you know, who did it. Uh, so, you know, at that point in time, Jack, in my career, um, I was involved with, you know, kind of managing, you know, large scale operations and investigations. And, you know, between I left in 99 or 2000 now if memory serves me right. And um, I think the last big case was probably, uh, you know, the bombing in Atlanta or, um, you know, the aftermath of the Yosef roundup and threats. Um, I'm trying to remember any others that transpired in that time period off, off the top of my head. And I I just can't right now. Yeah, no, amazing. What a, a formative time uh, that, that, uh, that, time from 1979 really to 2001 and then we had that paradigm shift with terrorism in 2001 of course but uh that period from 79 to 2000 2001 what a fascinating time that's you know where i grew up where i was seeing uh walter cronkite count down the days that uh they that we have u.s citizens as hostages in iran i remember desert one i remember uh the beirut marine barracks bombing i remember all the, on newsweek on time magazine on the newspaper and i was always just drawn to those things. I knew where I was headed. I knew the path I was on. Uh, I remember the, the, the picture of uh, TWA 847. Of course, I remember uh, 103 because I'm a little older by that point. Um, but all those things were very impactful to me. I can't think of anything that was as impactful as uh, seeing those headlines, reading those articles, and knowing that somehow 
as I moved into special operations that this would be my enemy uh, of the future. So, uh, so what, a, what an amazing time to be to be involved, intimately involved with those cases and those people and those personalities, essentially figuring it out as you're going along because you're starting something from scratch, really. I mean, you can't look back to, hey, what did we do? What did this office do in 1950 about these things? No. What are we doing in 55? What are we doing in 60? No, you're figuring this out as you're going during that seminal 20-year period, I'd say, between 79 and 2000. One. So, um, and then you get out and you go right into Stratfor or what do you do from, from there? Yeah. I, well, I got out and I went into the private sector, um, you know, working, uh, taking my protective intelligence model that, uh, you know, on how to protect corporate executives. And, uh, you know, Stratfor gave me a home, uh, which, uh, I'm extraordinarily grateful for because it, it, it gave me a platform and the ability to, to research and write books, uh, which, you know, I, I, I tell people this all the time, Jack. I, I, I could not have imagined as a 17-year-old rescue squad volunteer to a police officer uh, to, to being an agent to, to writing books today. And, you know, the, my life has been um, very blessed to have been able to you know, uh, do some of the things that I've done. And I'm extraordinarily grateful for those experiences over my lifetime uh, because I, I do sincerely believe that I had the opportunity to, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants before me that kind of helped me uh, along the way. I mean, I remember, you know, vividly uh, my first boss in the counterterrorism unit saying, I, I remember looking at a flash cable of a hijacking which might have been the Kuwaiti Air Flight 422, and him looking at me saying, well, what are you going to do about it? And it's like, well, what? I don't really know what to do about it, but I know we need to go. So, you know, we would just get on a plane and go and, uh, you know, try to figure out what happened. And so, you know, there were so many of those kinds of cases, but we literally in those days, Jack, were, were kind of making it up on the fly. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's hard to believe, and, and some of your listeners and viewers may not may not believe this, but I can remember one time calling the FBI and saying, hey, I've got evidence from this terrorist attack overseas. I need somebody to process it for me. I had gone over and investigated. Uh, this was a bombing in Madrid, okay. um, a uh, Japanese Red Army rocket attack against the U.S. Embassy there. And I came back with some evidence and, and they said, well, you know, we don't really know if we're interested in that. So I remember calling ATF and saying, hey, you know, I've got this evidence from this bombing. Do you think you can help me out here? Can you, can you make sense of what it is? And it was just such a different time period in our war on terror. And um, quite frankly, Jack, I don't think we were very successful at all. Uh, you know, we did the best we could, but there was just not a national focus and we just didn't have the resources. And, um, you know, that all changed on 2001. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, uh, before 2001, we were literally kind of making up the rules on our own and doing the best we could. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing this story. So in these books right here, so favorite rules, for those who have not read this, I mean, it's, uh, not just all these books are not just for security professionals. Um, one, they're great. They, you could read them almost as fiction, 
uh, and and uh, and have a great reading experience. But but they're nonfiction, um, and I keep going back to Beirut Rules, of course, because a lot of my uh, my characters uh, have some sort of connection. Or when I'm when I'm trying to get a feel for the Middle East during this time this time period, I just keep going back to to this and try to get inside of the heads of some of the terrorists um, uh, back there. What 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 they were thinking, how they planned, all those sorts of things. Um, and so Beirut Rules, I. I love this book. Go back to it time and time again. It's uh, it's very well gone through here, and I have yellow stickies in here to mark certain things. Um, so so incredible. What I want to what what I want to do is have you back on throughout the year and talk about each one of these individually because each one of these is a is a podcast here. Chasing Shadows is the one we just talked about, um, and uh, I love this going back to your your backstory uh, and growing up and having that that impactful. I mean, killing in your neighborhood um, that sent you on the path. And then Benghazi, of course. So I knew uh, Ty Woods and uh, and uh, Glenn Doherty. Um, Heroes. Here. So I knew those Heroes, guys. Jack. From my first, uh, yeah, Ty was at my first SEAL team, and then uh, Glenn and I went through training together through SEAL qualification training. Um, so yeah, this is incredible. Under fire, right here. You guys do an amazing job. You and Sam Katz, and then Ghost. And this thing, this is this is amazing. This reads like like a thriller, like a Jean Le Carré novel almost in in uh, in this, but. Um, do you still carry the, a card with you, with uh, with names on it? I, uh, you're going to think I'm paranoid, Jack, but I had to put it in a safe deposit box. Uh, I got kind of worried when people kept asking me questions about, uh, like, my moleskin notebooks, and yeah. um, so um, I, I have it in a I have it in a in a um, safety deposit box. Good. Good. Was it always the same card, or did you, did you? Or, yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. And uh, so for those listening, um, it was the names of people that had not yet been brought to justice. Is that right? That's correct. And yeah. Just as a reminder, having that that close to you. And even afterward, when you heard that someone was brought to justice, you'd cross that name off the list. Correct. Right? Amazing. Correct. Incredible. Incredible. So yeah, these books, thank you so much for for writing them and sharing this story with uh, the rest of us. It's, it's an invaluable resource for me and there's so well researched, so well written. So can't, uh, can't recommend these enough to everybody. So, but let's do it again and let's come back and let's talk about each one of these individually because they, 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 they deserve their own, uh, their, their own time slot. Well, you're very kind, Jack. And I must say before we sign off here that, uh, the devil's hand was awesome. And I read, I'm, I am fortunate enough to have read that book Thank you for sending that to me ahead of time. Absolutely. Uh, you kept me up for two nights. I finished it in two days. So I hope that you're working on your next one because now you're leaving me hanging. <laughs> I am working on the next one. Book five is in the works right now. And I already know where book six goes. So I'm very excited to, to be doing that. And speaking of projects, uh, we don't have to talk about it right now, but we can. I can tease maybe that you have another project in the works that I really hope um, that, uh, that you allocate resources into because I think it's a it's a fascinating topic to explore and uh, something that people don't know that much about but need to be reminded of um, and these also these keep the memories alive of a lot of these uh, people who sacrificed themselves for our country so um, yeah so I don't know if you you, you don't have to tease it because because uh, uh, I don't know what stage it's in but uh, but I know you have something else that's on your mind that uh, that you might be working on here pretty soon and I hope you I hope you do I do, Jack. I'm I'm going back to uh, again uh, a cold case that uh, I'm shining a spotlight on, 
uh, from 1979 and telling a story that that truly needs to be told. So uh, yeah. that's about all I can say at this juncture, but uh, stay tuned. I, w- I will. I will. And where can people find you these days? What are you doing these days? You've moved on from Strat4 and what are you, what are you up to? I'm uh, currently the executive director of the ONTIC Center for Protective Intelligence, which is located in Austin, Texas. And uh, you can find me at uh, officialfredburton.com uh, or you can find me on our ONTIC website. And uh, so it's a nice bookend for my career at this stage of my life uh, with uh, something that I was heavily engaged with starting back in the 80s, Jack. So, um, but I'd love to hear from uh, your listeners and um I thank you for everything that you have done, not only to me and, and for me, but also for our great nation, Jack. Um, well, thank you so much. Sincerely, sincerely appreciate your friendship. And, and uh, yeah, it means, uh, means the world to me. And, uh, and you're also on Twitter and Instagram at official Fred Burton on those, I think. Correct. On Twitter, I'm at Fred underscore Burton or something like that. I not really sh- I can never get it right, but <laughs> I'm on, I'm on Instagram as well. So, uh, I don't think there's too many Fred Burtons out there. Uh, there's not too many Freds left. And they can link, link from, the, uh, from the website there. So um, Absolutely. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I sincerely appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to sit and talk. And um, hopefully I'll get down there to, to Austin and we'll, uh, we'll hang out in person uh, as the world hopefully uh, gets us to a place where we can travel a little, uh, a, a little easier. And, uh, and hopefully we can do that soon. Anytime, Jack. Welcome to the spotlight section of the Danger Close podcast. So this is not a Model 19, like I just talked about with Fred Burton on the podcast. This is a titanium Smith & Wesson 38. But I bring it up because when Fred started both in the police department in Maryland and then with the Diplomatic Security Service, uh, he carried a wheel gun, a revolver. So as a student of weapon craft, I think it's important that uh, we know not just how to use the modern striker fire type pistols, but know how to run these revolvers as well. And it's also super fun. So uh, heading up to Thunder Ranch to do their revolver course is something that I highly recommend. And uh, I love running a revolver with Clint Smith yelling at me as I uh, move through different courses of fire. So uh, once again, a student of weapons, uh, revolvers are a necessity to know how to use and run. So bam, also... Fred Burton, at the end, we talked about a a list that he used to carry around in what was, for him, a black uh, moleskin notebook. Um, And he would write the names down of different people, whether they were trigger pullers as assassins, whether they're bomb makers, uh, whether they were the watchers, um, the close target reconnaissance people as part of different terrorist um, operations that he would then investigate. And those people that got away, he would write their names down in a book that you would carry with him all the time. So I always think it's good to have a, a, a solid leather notebook and a special pen uh, from which to keep track of whatever you're keeping track of. And in Fred's case, it was uh, assassins and terrorists. And even after he got out, he would cross those names out when people in the CIA, the FBI, Diplomatic Security Service brought these terrorists to justice. So that's it. Revolvers and notebooks. Thank you for joining me on the Danger Close podcast, an ironclad original presented by Six Hour. And be sure and visit officialfredburton.com, pick up his books, and uh, and tell friends about them. And 
If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review, subscribe, uh, leave a rating, do all those things, and uh, we'll keep bringing these to you every Wednesday. So until then, stay strong and keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What box do you fit in? Exactly, Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy and, or right, right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.